South Africa. It's time for The Long and Short of It with Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes. It is indeed the long and the short of it. Yep. Another episode. We are on a roll here, if we do say so ourselves. Oh, yes, go on, absolutely go on, cracking guests. Pat and yourself on the back. Yeah. I will. Yeah, thank you, Bill. Yeah. I will. Thank you very much. And uh, Another big name. No exception today, Dale Hayes. You're not a guest. You're a regular on this. It is a fantastic yeah, Come on, Dale. Today. Come on, Dale. Tear it up. A pretty big name in, in global golf. Absolutely. You know, when I first went overseas in 1969, I was 16 years old. And uh, Tony Jackson won the Open Championship that year. So he was instantly a major, major star uh, from Europe. And Europe needed it badly. They hadn't had a winner of the Open Championship in 17 years. And uh, they needed somebody to look up to, somebody who was going to make a difference. And that person was Tony Jackson. He was good looking. He had charisma. He actually went on and made a, a record. Can you believe that? No. Which we, you know. Yes, he sang songs. He thought he was Elvis Presley. <laughs> well, he looked up, like the they Beatles. Ended up, they ended up filling the hole in the middle and then fitting in the parking meters. But, uh, <laughs> but Tony, Tony was a wonderful, wonderful player. You know, he uh, he's kind of forgotten, you know, the tournaments that he won. He won the Open Championship. He won the US Open. He won many tournaments on the European Tour. And then... What he is probably remembered for mostly now is the fact that he changed the Ryder Cup with the help of Seve Ballesteros. And, uh, you know, it's just great that we're going to be able to get to chat to him. Yeah, so I think it's an interesting one. Uh, so if you look at his, his record in, in, in those two majors in 69 and 70, and then obviously the Ryder Cup um, being features of his career. But, you know, he had that burst of the late 60s and early 70s. But actually after that, his playing yep. career didn't really take off. Yeah, by 28, he was kind of done and dusted. But let us not give it all away. We sat down for an awesome chat with the legend that is Tony Jacklin. Today, we are honored to be joined by two-time major champion Tony Jacklin. And Tony, I was surprised to read that you are over in the United States and not England. And then I read a little bit further and see that you've actually been there for a very, very long time. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I came over permanently in 93, uh, a, about a year before my uh, 50th birthday to, to play senior golf and... Uh, Obviously been here ever since. I, I, I try and get back to Europe most years, but uh, sadly it's not been possible the last two years because of COVID. But here we are, and Florida is uh, its a bit opposite to what the UK used to be like. Otherwise, it's, uh, it's a little bit warm this time of the year, so I've uh, spent plenty of time inside with the air conditioning. As we speak to you, Hurricane Ida has hit the United States. Are you, have you guys been affected? No, we, we missed us. We're on the west coast of Florida, southwest Florida, in Sarasota, Bradenton. And uh, we got lucky on this one. It, uh, it went out into the Gulf. And, uh, well, they're getting drenched uh, in Kentucky right now. I think it's up, up in that part of the world. Of course, uh, Bradenton, uh, Tony, is... Uh is the venue of the concession, the, the course you designed with Jack Nicholas? Is that right? It's about 25 miles from where I'm sitting. Uh, I live on a little Donald Ross course, the Bradenton Country Club. But uh, the concessions are, are very much alive and well. It's a tough golf course. I think you might have, uh, it was showcased, obviously, in February early this year with uh, mm. the World Championship that Marikawa won. And uh, it showcased very well, I think. Everybody, we've got lots of nice compliments and uh, the owner got uh, a, a very f full membership now and uh, people are very keen to uh, to play it it's far too difficult for me these days but, <laughs> uh, but uh, it turned out good and uh, Jack and I have been uh, over there on numerous occasions for different things and uh, it turned out very well. You recently celebrated your 77th birthday. I must say you're looking in fine fettle over there, and I can see the the Beatle remnants. Uh, are you playing much golf these days still? No, no, I'm not. I, as I say, it's really, you know, the heat index is 100 degrees every day uh, here right now. It'll cool down in, a, in a six or eight weeks, and uh, I'll venture out again, but uh, I don't play much. You know, once you lose your uh, flexibility and, it, it's, uh, you know, and I don't really like doing things I get worse at. <laughs> so uh, we, we 
we play very well. It's a bit of a vicious circle, you know. The less you do it, the, the worse you get. The worse you get, the less you want to do it. So uh, there we are. But uh, obviously, I remember Dale coming on the scene in Europe when he was 18 or so. Oh, you can't forget uh, Dale Hayes. Hi, you Dale. <laughs> I'm, I'm doing fine. And, and, you know, Tony, while you mentioned that, I want to go back to where I first heard the name Tony Jacklin. 1966, I was 13 years old. And my brother, my oldest brother, played in the tournament at Kimberley. And you tied with the great Harold Henning. The two of you tied for that tournament. And uh, there was no playoff. Just tell us about that, because that was quite interesting. You know, Harold and I, we were already great friends then. Uh, you know, uh, he was a terrific character. I, I enjoyed his company immensely. And, of course, Pat, who has just actually passed away, uh, a few weeks ago, his wife was English, and uh, you know we we were good friends. And uh, I Harold had an arrangement with the tournament sponsors there that um, he had to be leave to get back here to the American tour, uh, and that's what he did. You know, so when I finished and tied him, he'd gone, and uh, <laughs> you know we, we we couldn't play off. So, and I re I recall a lot of the uh, Bobby Lott was one of them, Trevor Wilkes and there's a few other South Africans saying, oh, Jacko, you're going to get on the tee. Go on, just tee it up and, you know, say, where is he? If he's not here, it's yours. You know, it, and I said, I can't do that. Harold's a pal of mine. I would never do that. If if he made an arrangement with a sponsor, that's uh, that's got to stand. And uh, so the upshot was we, we shared the uh, first... Uh, first place finish and, and that was that but uh, a fond memory I never saw a cloud that week in the sky I was Tommy Horton was there with me dear old Tommy God rest his soul um, we spent the week in the same digs and, and uh, we never saw a cloud in the sky I, I never what a wonderful week of weather it was and it turned out to be a fond memory for me too it wasn't long after that that you won your first tournament on the PGA Tour in Jacksonville, 1968. And that's where it all happened. That's where it all started, when you were the first British player to have won in America in a very, very long time. Yeah. Well, you know, my I, I had two visits to uh, South Africa. It was a big learning curve for me. The first year I went there... I think I went the year before you mentioned, before the Kimberley tournament. That was my first trip. I made £35 uh, in private money in eight tournaments. So I went back and I think that second visit I made £1,000. This is when we're talking first prizes were 400 So it was a good learning curve for me, South Africa. And I, of course, I went back in 67 after Kimberley and won the Dunlop Masters and holding one, the first holding one televised and that and then I went to the tour school as well in 67 got my tour card and, and uh, you know won in short order I won in the spring of 68 at Jacksonville you know actually playing with Palmer and and on January the final round which was like playing with God Arnold was at, at that time so it was all good um fodder you know it was great for me mentally to be able to perform in front of you know Arnie's army as it were because I knew damn well they didn't care a hoot about how I was playing it was all about Arnold you know I got that done and that, that obviously stood me in, in good stead and uh, in the following year I, I went back to, to play the Open at Lytham in 69 and and uh, for the first time, I think the, the pe people were interested in what I was was doing. I mean, I, I got great galleries in practice rounds, and I had this sort of uh, I got you know got people's attention. And I I didn't do anything spectacular during the week other than I got a steady head, and I was I was on top of my game. I, I played just steady golf and uh, managed to come in two, two shots ahead of Bob Charles, who'd, who'd won there in 63, which is was my first Open in 63. I, I played four days. It was, uh, the Lytham was a, I mean, it's it's not the most attractive links golf course in, in England, but from uh, my standpoint, it, it was a, a favourite, has and, and always will be. 
You know, obviously you're very proud of what you achieved in 1969 winning the Open Championship. But I need to tell you that that actually wasn't the biggest thing that happened that week. 1969, I just turned 17. I qualified for the Open, teed it up with Roberto de Vicenzo and made two at the first hole. I led the <laughs> Open after one hole. <laughs> that's the real story, uh, Tony. Uh, that's a story. <laughs> well, that's a great story too. And Roberto, of course, was, he was so good to all of us. I mean, he was a what a what a wonderful guy. Uh, I, I so enjoyed his his company, and uh, I actually played well in the opening '67, where he won at Hoylake. I was fifth in that championship, but. Uh, I, I so enjoyed playing with Roberto. Uh, he, he inspired me for some. Him and Christy O'Connor Senior were two sort of favourite draws for me. When I saw my name against theirs, I, I loved it. They were such natural, wonderful players and, and great people. You won that Open in 69. 1970, we went to St Andrews and uh, you, were, you were on track to break the course record. And then the rain came down, and a lovely quote from uh, the great Henry Longhurst. 1972, Trevino chipped in, and you ended up finishing third. Those two opens, you could have, it could have been three in a row. Yeah, yeah. I, and I was third in uh, 71 as well, uh, when uh, Mr. Lou poleaxed a lady on the last toll he was playing. Uh, well, the, the, the ball hit her on the head and mm. it, it deflected back into the fairway, and he got up and down and, and finished second. But uh, yeah, it was a good, it was a good, uh, a good run. I, I, you know, Lynx golf was uh, was my favourite form of golf. I used, to, I, I think, you had to have great imagination uh, to play Lynx golf. I was interested, you know, just watching this. This last open, uh, Spieth maybe coulda, shoulda. He hit an awful second shot in that third round on the 17th hole. He tried. He played the wrong shot. Nobody picked up on it. I was surprised the commentators, but he tried to play that shot with a wedge. Yeah. And if ever bump and run was needed, that was that was it. And of course, he finished five five, and I think that cost him. But uh, there's there's so many ways to get it done on links golf courses. It's not about perfect shots all the time. It's about uh, imagination, and uh, I I still prefer links to, to any other form of golf. Uh, I don't can't do it anymore, but uh, I miss it. Tony, I'd, I'd like to 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 revisit that that seventy two loss when, when Trevino won the Open, but. Perhaps chronologically before we get there, let's look at that 1970 US Open victory and perhaps give us a sense of how significant that was because when you joined the US PGA Tour, you were the first British player, I think, since the 40s to have made a decision to try and make it on the, on the PGA Tour. To, so to have won their, their Open, as it were, how significant at the time was it? Oh, it was, it was huge. I mean, huge at the time. And of course... Really, what what won me was actually a, a, a putting tip from Bert Yance's older brother Jim, who was a golf pro, and uh, we played a, a practice round the day before the on the Wednesday, the day before the first round, and I was playing nicely, but you know I was struggling putting, and he said. Jim said, have you ever tried looking at the hole and putt? And I said, what, what are you talking about? You know, we, we went over to the putting green and we slung some balls down. And he said, to dress the ball, look at the hole and putt. And I started to do it. And I stayed there an hour or so on the putting green. And I got this wonderful sense of distance, feel for distance. And uh, the first day... It blew a hooligan. I mean, it was like 40 mile an hour winds, which made me feel right at home because, you know, all my early life, I spent playing Lynx golf courses in, in lousy weather. <laughs> anyway, I got on the first green and I had a 20 footer and this, this whole thought process was still there. And uh, I didn't look at the hole when I put it, but I gave it the, a long last look, came back to the ball and put it. Anyway. I made a 20-footer on the first uh, green, and uh, I was the only player to break par that first day. It was atrocious, very, mm. very difficult win. Mm. Nicholas Palmer, player, all shot 79, 80, 81. And when you get ahead like I was, you get engaged, I think, mentally at a, at a higher level. All of a sudden, you know, I had 
you know, I had a good deal of experience by then. And, uh, you know, I just kept on doing the same same thing. Second day, I increased my lead to three shots and then to four shots. And then, and then ultimately, I birded the last to win by seven. You know, it was the only time uh, that I ever played golf and prayed. And I didn't pray to win ironically, that final day, I was so damn nervous. I was four in front, and I thought, if I don't get this done, I'm going to be branded, uh, you know, a joker or whatever. And, and I prayed to just have the strength to get through the day. And uh, I mean it, and I can remember it, and, and it's the only time I ever did that. I was pretty frightened about, the, you know, the whole thing. But got through it, got through the first eight holes, and then a bit shaky on a couple of putts. On the, I missed one on the seventh and one on the eighth, and then I hit a putt on the ninth that probably shouldn't have gone in that did. And I just felt the pressure roll away, and I, I sort of uh, enjoyed myself the, the last nine. And it's just worthy of mentioning that Ben Wright, who passed away just yesterday, uh, was uh, one of my oldest friends. He was the only British press guy there that week at Hazeltine. He never saw me play the 10 hole because he was busy phoning his uh, stories back to England. It was a sort of six-hour time change. But to God rest him, he, he was the only guy there reporting. And uh, we, were, we we'd been friends for 60 years, and uh, he met his maker yesterday. Well, our condolences for, for your loss, Tony. Um Two questions, and it's regarding your prize money. The first was you won $30,000, but you didn't benefit very much in the way of sponsorships. Now, why was that? Well, um, you know, I, it was all done on the back of the Ope. Uh, McCormack was uh, was managing me. And, uh, you know, when I won the Open, I got, uh, I don't know, there weren't that many deals to be had in those days you know i got a deal with dunlop internationally but i mean we're talking like ten thousand pounds a year you know we're not talking about mega bucks and and I, most of the deals were done on the on the back of the british open when they were covered for two or three years if you know uh, you know they, the, in 69 the deals were done for maybe two or three years at a time and so uh Really, and, and I didn't live in America, which was, of course, the biggest mistake I ever made. I was being advised by IMG, you know, that I, I was European and I needed to be in Europe. Uh, ultimately, you know, Americans, as is the, actually the case today, is, uh, you know, Freddie Couples made a hell of a lot more uh, money out of the game than Bernard Langer did in, in endorsements over the years. And despite the fact that Langer still... Uh, you know, uh, an item at 64 mm. uh, on the golf course. So, uh, But that was just the nature of the game. And, and by the time it came, I came round to 72, to be honest, you know, I'd had five years of back and forth on, on there, maybe six times a year, seven times. I would be, you, you couldn't play more than three weeks or so uh, at a time. And I was about cooked, you know, uh, by then. I, I was... Uh, I was certainly tired of all of that travel and the fact that, uh, you know, the European tour, I, I helped the European tour get started by, you know, playing in, in things like the Italian and Scandinavian Opens and, and I was closer to home and uh, so I opted to, to leave the uh, US tour in 72 and, and get to go closer to home, where in fact, what I should have done is to have been living in America at that time, yeah. and, uh, where, where everything was uh, easier. Now, the other question I have regarding your thirty thousand dollars that you won in seventy is, what you did or what ended up happening to the winner's check? Well, it went to the cleaners, I think. <laughs> uh, it, uh, yeah, I left it in the back pocket of some lime green slacks I had at the time. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, uh, they managed to write me a, another one. I, I didn't. Uh, that must have left was, you cold. But it happened. Yeah, uh, they they had to write me another check. <laughs> Tony, that week, even though you won the United States Open, Dave Hill got almost as much coverage as you got over the week. Yeah. Tell us about that. Yeah. 
Well, you know, Dave was, well, he was, he was crazy. I mean, I, I don't know whether he was on drugs or what, but he was, he was, he always had something to say. And, uh, of course, he, he thought, uh, Hazeltine was a new golf course uh, at the time. Uh, the guy called Tooten B. Heffelfinger was a big man in uh, the USGA, and he was from Hazeltine. And he got—he basically was responsible for getting the Open there. I think there was a ladies' Open there before our U.S. men's Open. And it was a new course, and uh, Trent Jones Sr. did it with a lot of dog legs, a lot of blind holes. And it's out there in the plains, and there was nothing to stop the wind, and it was wild. I actually have his quote here. He said, if I had to play this course every day for fun, I'd find me another game. All it lacks is 80 acres of corn and a few cows. That's right. That was Dave's, uh, and he reckoned if he'd have won it, he was going to organise to drive up to the prize giving in a tractor and all this time. Anyway, <laughs> but as Dale rightly said, you know, he got he got as much publicity or more maybe for his comments than, uh, than I did. Uh, Tony, I'd like to go to that 1972 Open um, at Muirfield, and it's been well documented. You were tied for the lead playing the 17th. Trevino's out of position. He's played four shots. He's not on the green yet. You're just short of the green in two, and Trevino proceeds to chip in and you three putt and he takes I think a one shot lead to to the last and 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 you end up finishing third and it's uh, again been documented you said you felt that that loss was a particularly tough one to take and the fact that you weren't perhaps the player going forward after that that you were before it, it was you know a tough pill to swallow but uh, it happened I mean I you know I, I played with him in the third round as well and I witnessed these five, well, up to that point, I'd witnessed four chip-ins. You know, he sculled a bunker shot on the 16th hole one day. It took one bounce and went straight in. He was over the back on 18 in the high rough. I was on the front of the green. He said, oh, I'll just come up. This is in the third round. And he chipped that in, and I struggled to two-putt there. Anyway, it was a sort of straw, if you like, that broke the camel's back. And I... I had a 15, 16 footer and my reaction to that final chip in well, for his, because he hacked his way down that hole. You never see Trevino hook the ball and he hooked it off the tee in the bunker and then he hooked his second shot into the left rough before hitting it over the back. And uh, I, I said to myself, you son of a gun, you're not going to beat me like that. And I took a run at this. 15 footer and it went that sort of awkward two and a half three feet by I succumbed and I didn't even I, I didn't par the last uh, uh, Nicholas jumped in between us of course and just a very quick story about that week as well yeah. it's worth mentioning that I was I think six shots ahead of Nicholas and Trevino was seven I think that was how we started the final round and Nicholas had already won the Masters in the U.S. Open. And Trevino said to me on the first tee, you know, well, he, he might beat one of us, but he won't beat both of us. You know, we're talking Grand Slam here for, for Nicholas. Yeah, and me. yeah. And we, we stood on the ninth tee, and Nicholas had just finished playing 11, and he passed us both. <laughs> he passed us both. And we, we both then eagled the ninth, Trevino and I. But, you know, you talk about things can happen at golf, or what can happen, that was a... It was an incredible uh, week altogether, <laughs> not because of my demise, but, uh, you know, it was it was a, a, a fantastic final day. But Tony, you also said that uh, you were pretty cooked by then. You'd been travelling uh, back and forth between the States and Europe, and uh, and I see it been uh, been written that uh, you felt that Mark McCormick at IMG had, uh, had put you through your paces, uh, obviously commercialising your brand, and, and you were pretty much done by then. I mean, I was tired. And, you know, I, I, I had five years full-time on that tour and all the toing and froing back and forth. And I think a combination of that sort of, uh, you know, punch in the solar plexus, if you like, from Trevino and, and everything, it was a good time to sort of change uh, change direction. And I won tournaments uh, through the 70s, you know, a, a lot of European tour events. And, but playing over there put uh, a lot more pressure on me because I was, you know, it was almost like I was supposed to win with one arm behind my back. And uh, 
it put put uh, a, a, a huge amount of pressure. You know, I was at most of the galleries most of the time, and it really manifested itself in in my potting. You know, I I knew that even even back then, I knew that the game was was. 60, 70 Pacific could play. It was about the putter. I mean, you had to make putts. And I got to the point where, you know, I I got overly tense. It wasn't happening naturally. And I was pushing myself. I wasn't playing golf on my own terms. You know, it, it, it started to show. And, and by the early 80s, I, you know, it was, it, it was about the only thing I did that made me unhappy. So I stopped doing it. Went to live in southern Spain. But it's just crazy to think, though, that in 72, you were only 28 years old. Yeah, but uh, I think, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd been force-fed. Example, I won the, the Open in 69, met with McCormack on the Sunday morning. It, we'd finished, the Open finished on a Saturday in those days. And, uh, you know, I was looking forward to going maybe to Barbados for a couple of weeks to contemplate life, you know, sit on the beach and just get my breath back because I'd, I'd used all my try. All my try had gone. And I, I remember sitting with McCormack and he said, you've got no chance of doing it. I said, you've got to go. It's Westchester Classic next week. Uh, and it's the biggest first prize in golf. It was $50,000 first prize. He says, you need to get back over there. You need to, that's where the marketplace is. Da -da 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 -da. And I thought, well, you know, he must know like an idiot. I came to America and played four tournaments and missed four cuts because, you know, if, if body and mind don't turn up at the same time, you can't do it. You know, it was one thing me being there, but my mind was spent. I, I, and, of course, it wasn't until uh, uh, later that year, the, uh, the Ryder Cup at Birkdale, which was the year of the concession, that, that I, you know, I was unbeaten in those matches that week. I was a sort of, you know, I was the only one in the, in the field that was uh, was unbeaten. But it took me that long to get, get my, my breath back. And it was a harsh lesson to know. I should have known better. And you think, well, but you didn't, we, you know, just to win a tournament in those days... You, you, you know, you weren't secure for, for all time. I mean, it's, it's a wonderful interview the other day with the, they did with Cameron Smith. And, yeah. you know, they, they, the Australian who's having a, a great season. And they said, what difference, you know, what would 15 million do for you, Cameron? Yeah, and he said, well, I don't know. I'm pretty set. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some fishing gear. <laughs> Gee. Well, he hasn't won any majors and he's he's pretty set and, and uh, it's pretty impressive. It's uh, nice to be around uh, as a golf, uh, talented golf pro in 2021. Tony, we're going to get, we're obviously going to get to the Ryder Cup in, in a little bit, but I just want to put into perspective what you meant to the European tour in those early 70s, because I was there. 71, 72, 73. When Tony Jacklin entered a golf tournament in, in, in Europe or Britain, there were thousands of people. If Tony Jacklin wasn't there, there might have been, there may have been hundreds of people. And that mm -hmm. was the difference. You, you were, you had charisma. You were a, you were a star. You were a, barring Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, and maybe Gary Player, you were the biggest star in golf worldwide. And, mm -hmm. you know, People, people have forgotten that. I think uh, in most places around the world, but I mean, you were you were unbelievable in those days. The way you played golf, you were so aggressive, and especially on the greens. I mean, I, I don't think I've ever seen anybody until Tom Watson. Tom Watson putted a little bit like you did, and Palmer. I'm told in the early days, Palmer putted like that. That you were just so aggressive on the greens. But I just want to turn it into the lighter side. You played in you played in the world match play against. Lee Trevino. Tell us what happened as you walked off the tee and tell us the scoring of that match. It was, uh, I don't know what year, 72, I think. Same, I think it was the same year as all the chipping. And uh, I was four down at lunchtime. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I got a lot of work to do to catch him up. And we both teed off. Uh, for the afternoon 18 and um, hit decent shots and we're walking up that little hill after you go over the road and you're walking up that little hill and he is babbling on you can't, and he's t talking like a machine gun you know 
hundreds of them. I'm just walking beside. I said, Lee, I don't want to talk. I just let's play golf. He said, you don't have to talk. Just listen. <laughs> you know, and I thought that was, you know, that was Trevino. That was his, uh, you, had to, you had to endure it. And, and uh, you know, hell, he would talk on his own backswing. <laughs> you know, I got you know, And he's, it was his way of, you know, getting rid of the, the pressure and uh, dealing with things. And uh, you didn't have to endure it with any of the other guys, but uh, he, he was he was something else. And, and he could play golf, I tell you. He, he was a terrific links player, especially. Another story is you, you're going to play an exhibition match in Bristol or somewhere down the M4, and you're driving in that gold Rolls Royce, and you get stopped by the policeman on the way in the early morning, and you... <laughs> Tell us that story. <laughs> That's pretty rock star. Jeez. I pulled up, thought, go down, I'm going to get out of this, you know. And he said, you know, he said, do you know what speed you're doing? I said, officer, I'm so sorry, I don't. Uh, he said, you were close to a, a, a ton, you know, you're close to doing a hundred miles. My, I said, this, I, you know, I said, this thing, you just don't know. I mean, it, it's so quiet and everything. You know, and I'm gone. And he said, "Get off." He says, "Go on, you know, you know, count yourself lucky." He knew who I was and all the rest of it. Of course, I went and did my deed or whatever it was. Spent a night there. I was coming back the next day. Seamless, same sort of stretch of road, and all of a sudden, this blue light comes on again. <laughs> no. Oh, for Christ's sake! <laughs> you know, and uh, and it's the same guy. <laughs> oh, and I put the window down. Sure, sure, I was going to get nailed. He said, he said, I'm sorry to stop you again, but he said, I forgot to get your autograph. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I signed his autograph and put the window back up. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, those were the days, anyway. Okay, let's go to the Ryder Cup, boys. Yeah, I mean, whilst you're in your prime, the concession happens, and I know you've spoken about it at length, and perhaps we could. We could touch on it, but possibly from a different angle in the sense that did you know or have any inkling that it would become the massive thing that it still is today? No, I mean, that's the short answer is, you know, funny enough, they played uh, <laughs> the passage of time. They played that tournament, the world thing there earlier this year. And Tyrrell Hatton had never heard of the country. Oh, my goodness. Shocking. I mean, he was doing it. He didn't even know it happened. So, I mean, just shows you what uh, kind of a, a bubble some of these characters uh, live in. But, no, it was it was a moment in time, obviously. It, it, it was the circumstances were unique. You know, it's not a position you want to be in, I can tell you, with all your teammates you know, everything relying on the outcome of your match. I mean, you talk about getting nervous. I mean, you know, the way it all unfolded, I I stood, I marked my ball f from 20 inches to two feet. That's Jack's uh, reckoning. We've talked about it multiple times. And I, I stood there and I'm saying to myself, TJ, whatever happens, you're going to have to make this putt. And then he ran his putt four and a half, five feet past. And it was too far past to say, good, good. You mm. know, I mean, it just it wouldn't, wouldn't have been the right thing to do. And then, of course, he holds his putt like the great player he is. As he's picking the ball out, he picked my coin up and, and conceded. You know, I, I, was, I, I wasn't even thinking. Uh, like I say, I was thinking. And I was in what? I was in shock. I was... Uh, Relieved, I was. Oh God, I don't know. I mean, it was. I think uh, relieved's the right word. Yeah, it was. <laughs> the thing is, you know, he knew that they would retain it if with with the tie. I mean, I'm not taking yeah. anything away. Yeah. But that was Jack's Jack's forte was that, you know, he thought better under under pressure. I think than you know most of us. He, he had clarity of thought. But it was a, a, a great gesture. I, I mean, I, I actually put pen to paper after it, you know, when all when it was all said and done, and 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 said, you know, I'll never forget that it was a wonderful thing to do. And of course, he did it because I'd won the Open two months, three months before, and he didn't want to see anything happen to spoil that, and or even take a chance that it might be spoiled. 
you know, he said, um, you know, I think so I would have made it, but, uh, you know, it was a, yeah, it was a memorable week altogether. It was a watershed year, I suppose, in Ryder Cup, but of course, and maybe, maybe my open win had, had inspired some of the other, my team members, you know, you know, that's yeah. what it's all about. And, you know, if Jack I could do it, we could do it. You know, and they stepped up to the plate. I mean, Peter Townsend had a, a great week, played played well, and uh, you know, the likes of, of Peter Alice were on the team, and, and Christy Senior, and uh, it was everybody played uh, played well. Different format, of course, two singles on the final day, which was, uh, but uh, yeah, it was uh, it was a moment, and of course, we're very honoured this year to you know the presenting the Nicholas Jacklin Award, and that's ongoing. So it, it, it's a nice, nice thing to be, wonderful to be part of it, although I didn't think so necessarily at the time. It's a bit, you know, nerve-wracking coming down that last hole. And I, rem- I remember Jack hollering at me as I, I sort of raced off the tee after hit the tee, and he said, Tony. So I... I stood and he caught me up. We walked together. He, he said, uh, I want to ask you. I said, what? He said, are you nervous? I said, Jack, I'm bloody petrified. <laughs> I just thought I'd ask you because if it's any consolation, I feel the same way you do. <laughs> oh, that's brilliant. You know, yeah. you know uh, it, was, it put it in perspective. Really. And then Eric Brown, who was our captain, Fiery Scott, he came sort of nonchalant, or trying to look nonchalant, walked towards me with his sort of blazer on before I hit my second. He says, you know what you got to do? I said, Eric, I know what i got to do. You know, get out of the way, in other words. Tony, uh, what, did, what did Jack actually say to you? What did he actually say to you when he picked up the coin and shook hands he with said, you? No, he said, he, said uh, he put my coin back in my hand. He said, I don't think you would have missed that, but I would never give you the opportunity in these circumstances. That was his exact word. Of course, you know, um, we were already good friends. I played with him in the World Cup at Yomiuri in 1966 in Japan, and we, we became fast friends. Of course, when I got my tour card uh, in 67, his house was just down the, the road there from PGA National, and we went skiing and, and that sort of thing. But you know, you play with all these different characters, and we both played with hundreds of them. But as far as Jack was concerned, he had a, a great amateur career for a start, and that was his, it was almost like he learned all his lessons playing amateur golf. You know, I was fortunate enough to play with his father, uh, Charlie Nicholas, at Scioto in Ohio back in the late 60s. But he tells he tells stories, uh, you know, against himself, Jack does, you know, when he, he would sort of look down his nose at lesser mortals, if you like, and his father taught him, you know, and his amateur career taught him lots of life lessons like that. And I always felt with Jack that, you know, his, his sense of fair play was uppermost in, in his thoughts. He would never flinch if you hit a good shot and say, good shot, great shot, you know, Arnold for example, would just go, you know, and, and, and sort of ignore the fact that they were any good at all. Uh, but, but Jack would just say, good shot, and then he would try and hit a better. That was his mentality. That was just the way he approached the game, which I thought was fantastic. He never did anything that I can remember other than the right thing. In world match plays, for example, I mean, he, I remember times when he was given rulings that he didn't agree with, and he was he was never shy to step up and say, I mean, there was some colonel, I remember from the 60s, some, well, you know, some hoity-toit stuff, you know, the referee of his game, and he disagreed with him, and he didn't care, you know, he knew the rules, and uh, he, he wasn't afraid to speak up. You know, he's uh, he's somebody to uh, that, that uh, the golfing world can look up to and be proud of. Do you think anyone other than Jack could have given you that putt in those circumstances? Yeah, I think you know, you know, people have said that. I mean, I remember when when Monty was getting given a hard time 
you know, by the galleries at one Ryder Cup. He's playing against Payne Stewart and Payne, you know, they were calling him Mrs. Doubtfire or something. I don't know. And Payne said, pick it up, you know, we move on, you know. And, and you know, Payne was a, a tremendous sport too, but yeah. uh, he was having none of it. He was having none of that nonsense. And uh, uh, ironically, we're, we're, we're talking about it again, you know, with DeChambeau and some of the galleries involving themselves in stuff that they shouldn't be doing. Fitting then that that, that, that significant and iconic Ryder Cup moment uh, with, with Jack almost preceded then your, your next phase of, of Ryder Cup involvement and your your key role in ensuring that, that, that Europe then held its own against the Americans. Uh, your recollections of, uh, of those key moments in the early days when you, as captain, you're appointed captain at 39 and you make significant changes uh, with the backing of, uh, of, of the officials, you know, such as taking the Concord and looking after the players. Your recollections of that time uh, and that first significant appearance as captain when, when, when the Europeans showed the Americans that, that they could hold their own? Well, of course, you know, my own Ryder Cup experiences started in, in 67. And, you know, I play under, I played under numerous different captains, some good and some, some bad. And I'd seen numerous American captains equal, probably the same, you know, as Hogan was the captain of the American team in 67. And there's a lot to observe and a lot to learn in these uh, situations. You know, obviously I was a, a world-class player for a number of years in there and, you know, I didn't take kindly to getting my backside kicked, you know, being on a team that was, wasn't up to it. But it, it, it wasn't necessarily just, uh, you know, the way, uh, the quality of the players all, all the time. There was, a, I think, the British, uh, when it was Britain and Ireland, they typical of the British. I, I, I think it was more important for them to show up uh, than dream of winning. You know, we, we would we would wear anything anybody would give us. I go back into the seven, early 70s, we, we wore stylo shoes. I was wearing foot joy uh, alligator shoes at, at that time and we'd been told that I had to wear these plastic, welded plastic uppers and Souls and of course the soul came off my shoe when I was playing Roy, Ray Floyd in a, at Laurel Valley, I think it was, in the middle of the round. And I remember saying to Diaries, "Now what?" <laughs> you know, I, and those sort of things stuck. You know, as I say, if they give you the the gear, you know, you tended to want to wear it. And and the captains, you know, the likes of John Jacobs, you know, it, it was more important for him to. To turn up and uh, and and be a, a good loser kind of thing. Yeah. Just on that, I mean, sorry to interrupt you, Tony. But let's set the scene there because at one stage in the seventies, it before it became Europe, it was pretty dire for Great Britain and Ireland. I think Tom Weisskopf didn't pitch up one year, didn't he? Go to Alaska well, or something? No, that's that's the year I talked to him two days ago. By the way, he's going through a tough time with pancreatic cancer, and he's. Uh, He's, he's got a couple of tough weeks ahead with oh, chemo and so on. Geez. But, uh, no, that was prompted uh, Jack to write a letter to Lord Derby uh, suggesting that Europe should be involved and might maybe level the playing field a bit. But the writing was on the wall when Tom, uh, in 77, cleared off and went to shoot a ram or some something in, uh, <laughs> in uh, Alaska. And, uh, yeah. It was time for a change. And even then, there were those that said, oh, we really, you know, we don't Europe, we don't need their help. You know, typical, <laughs> you know, you know the ones I mean. Yeah, no, we know. <laughs> we know very well. And, you know, by the time we, we, we did go to Europe, and that was ended up being, uh, we got the Europeans involved. And, of course, in those days, it was basically Spaniards, you know, savvy I think Savvy and uh, Garrido played in 79, and Jacobs was the captain. It wasn't very in inspiring. Mark James behaved badly, uh, as did Ken Brown. They got fined for And there was no real impetus there for us, you know. Uh, sort of Jacobs was dealing with their misbehaving. As he was sort of in shock about it all, and uh, they got fined the biggest fine in history. PJ at that time when we got back home. But we didn't make an impression. The outcome was very much as it had been 
with Great Britain and Ireland. And then, beyond that, in 81, I wasn't an automatic choice captain. I was 13th, I think, in the money list. And Jacobs picked James ahead of me, you know, to, to fill the team out as a captain's pick despite having done what he'd done in 79. Yep. And then they banned Seve because Seve's uh, simultaneous to that. Appearance fees. Thing was, his manager was trying to get uh, appearance fees for him. And, of course, uh, he put 50% on the gate if he played. But the European tour never sat him down or, and, and said, look, how can we work things out together? And so I was teed off. Seve was teed off big time. And they went to play at Walton and Hees and got back kicked again. And, and of course, Jacobs said, this is the greatest American team ever assembled. And da, 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 da. Nothing to be ashamed of, boys, and, and all that. And, uh, you know, I'd done with the Ryder Cup. What went on at Walton and Hees, I, I didn't even, I was, I was half interested. So 82 goes by. I sort of go into retirement. I won. I actually won the PGA that year, and not long after that, I sort of I wasn't enjoying it, and I stopped doing it. And uh, but it was in the spring of '83, April '83, that I was hitting balls at Sunmore Golf Club near Leeds, and Ken Schofield and uh, Colin Snape, who was the secretary of the PGA at the time, they two of them came up to me together on the range. I was hitting balls, and you know, miles away, and. Uh, they, they said, the boys have, have asked us to uh, see if you would think about being the captain of the... And now we've only got six six months before the matches. And you could have knocked me down with a feather. I mean, I, I you know, instinctively I wanted to say, sod off. Yeah, <laughs> um, jog on. I, I, I said, you know, you've shot me and I'll, I'll meet you tomorrow. And I was staying with a good friend of mine up there in Leeds, Marshall Bella. I used to stay with him all the time. And I went and thought about it that night I, because I didn't care whether I did it or not. And I thought, well, maybe, you know, we can make some changes. So basically I met them the next day. I said, I, I want to do it. I want carte blanche to do what I want to do. And they said, well, what would that be? And I said, well, I want Concord, and I want Kashmir, and I want a team room, and I want I wanted all the things that, you know, I felt we deserved to have. And Concord was, the Americans were going on Concord anyway, and, and, and we were traveling on the back of the bus of British Airways, not knowing who was paying the dry cleaning bill, you know. It's crazy to think about now, but it's just, it's quite bizarre. Well, yeah, it's unbelievable now, of course. But uh, anyway, they kept saying yes. And so I said, okay, well, you know, on that basis, I'll, I'll do it. No captain's picks because we were already into the year. And so it was a fait accompli as far as I was, you know, I had to take the top 12 in the money list. And then Lord Derby was hanging around, like, you know, waiting for the outcome of this uh, meeting I was having with Snape and Schofield. And I went to Derby and, and I said, what about... Seve. And because Derby, make no mistake about this, back in those days, and this is the way it was, as far as the PGA were concerned, the club pros, you know, they needed somebody like him at the top, you know, royalty and all of that to, to give them, they thought, you know, kudos, I suppose. Anyway, I said, I said to him, well, what about Seve? And he said, well, you, you've accepted the captain's job, he's your problem. <laughs> Gee, thanks. So, so I said, well, that's fine. I said, so I made a, obviously a beeline for Seve. I got his whereabouts, and we we met for breakfast within within days of me talking with him. And of course, he vented, and I'm I said, Seve, you preach into the converted. I know what shower they are, you know. He's, he's, and I said, but the thing is, I've accepted the captain's job and I I really I, I can't do it without you I need you on on board I mean you know as far as I'm concerned you're it you know he, he in the end he said okay I I help you <laughs> the rest is history and, and the rest is is history as I say we went within a single point that September at Palm Beach Gardens at PGA and it was a kick in the gut you know I mean Watkins hit a wedge 
in on the last to beat Canizari, it's stone dead. Nicholas kissed the divot. For everything, it looked like we were going to squeeze in, despite everything. And there's a picture, I've got it in an old V8 video in there, and we're a miserable bunch on that dais, on that, you know, lying, and we all felt like so close but and then i think it was savvy who actually said hey this this is not a loss he said this is the best we've ever done in america you shouldn't be so sad you know (laughs) you shouldn't be so sad but it it was it was gut-wrenching being that close and not getting it done but of course you know after that we i went back and as you do as a golfer, I, I went through the things I'd changed and done and said, is there any more I could do on that? And I was pretty happy with the way everything had done. The team room was especially important. You know, in the years that I'd played, we used to get told about the pairings in a sort of corner of a locker room. We were left to our own devices in the evening to go off to dinner, local restaurants with our wives, girlfriends, whatever. And, you know, when I did got the team room, I took care of all the food and beverage in there. There was everything in there anybody could ever want. No reason to go anywhere else. And, of course, they didn't go anywhere else. It, it was fantastic. There's no reason to go anywhere else. And I kept that. I'm sure it's not that way anymore, but I kept that for the players only and their wives. There was no officials in there. There was no hangers-on, no caddies in there. It was just a team and, and the wives. And everything else that I'd done, I thought I was, I was good with it. Basically, we took that, you know, uh, the wounds healed uh, over a two-year period. We went to the Belfry. I had my captain's pick. I got three picks. I, two wasn't as, enough as far as I was concerned. And uh, I got my captain's picks. And, uh, well, long and the short of it is... We got it done in front of the mm-hmm. home crowd for the first time in, in 28 years. And Bernard Lang, I was 28 years old at the time. And the last and time they they won, you were actually in attendance. You were a youngster the last time Great Britain and Ireland had won. Yeah, I was, it was the Ryder Cup in 57 that gave me the inspiration to, I was 13, yeah. to be a pro. You know, I want to be like him. You know, that was, uh, so it had been a long time for me too. Yeah, it was it was extraordinary scenes there at uh, at the Belfry. Sam holding the that putt on eighteen was uh, it was pure theatre. And and then of course similarly, you know, winning for the first time on American soil might have been the, the highlight of it all for me. We'd never done that, and at Millfield Village, and you know, with Jack as captain, kind of thing. And in in a in a perverse sort of way, I suppose. You know, Trevino being the captain in 85 was... Payback time. Uh, yeah, well, you know, there was nothing <laughs> wrong with it as far as I was concerned. <laughs> you know, nothing lasts forever. And, and I felt, you know, I, I mean, having one home away, I was I was very happy to, to, to walk away. But unlike today, you know, there was, there was no obvious successor. So they caught me into doing it in 89. And, and the irony of 89, all the stars lost. Savvy got beat, Woozy got beat, Faldo got beat, and it was the Ronan Rafferty's and Christie Juniors that held the thing together. You know, ultimately that two iron of Christie's. I mean, I'll never forget, you know, being there, I was stood next to him when he hit that two iron. One more good swing for Ireland, and God, he, I mean, couples melted. He just he bailed out of an eight iron. I mean, Christie's hit a damn good drive, and a two iron. Couples actually pulled it, but he was long enough to clear the lake on the, that 18th at the Belfry. And he had an eight iron in and, <laughs> and that was it. And, and of course, after, after that, I, I thought, well, Christ, you know, I said to George O'Grady, how, how long am I supposed to do this? He says, well, as long as you want. I said, well, I, I've, I've, I'm I, I was, I was frightened of outstaying my welcome, to be honest. Margaret Thatcher was, Prime Minister, and I'd seen what her so-called friend had done in the end, stabbed her in the back, 
you know, there were a bunch of people around that, that they're in their 70s will know that. I, I was frightened that, you know, one bridge too far, don't it, it'd be self-indulgent. And so I said, thanks, but, you know, four times is, is enough. And I said, Bernard Gallagher, who was, you know, my first lieutenant, as it were, there was no vice captains in those days. Uh, but he, he'd been with me for the three of the four captaincies helping me out. Uh, you know, uh, as, as best he could. And I said, Bernard's a good guy. He, he, he knows exactly how it all works. Give him a shot. And uh, and that was it. I went to Kiowa to make a speech at the opening ceremony, but uh, and, and of course was there for for for, for, the, for that. But it was it was very close again. Uh, came down to that last putt of Langer, and I yeah. cried. I cried with Langer after, and I'm damned. I thought it might be a career terminator, and I'm damned if he didn't go and win the tournament the week after. I mean, it, it, you know, that tells you everything you need to know about Bernard Langer's yeah. mentality. He's as tough as nails, and uh, you know, we've seen so much since. It, it's been an unbelievable, uh, and plus, you know that. You've got to go back to then and think. Well, there was no, there was no President's Cup, there was no Solheim Cup, which we're going to enjoy uh, this week. They all came on stream in the nineties. Gary and the Greg Norman, and, you know, the Aussies and South Africans, all wanted to experience what we were experiencing in the Ryder Cup, and of course, uh, the the President's Cup came to pass, and as, as did the Solheim. And, and look at all the emotion and, and the wonderful times they brought for golf fans. It's been fantastic. And the Ryder Cup continues to amaze, amaze me. I mean, I've been at a mall, I was at Medina and saw that all unfold. And you, you, it's like fairy stories, so many of them. Yeah, I think that is a perfect place to to leave it. Before we, we wrap this chat up, it's been absolutely fascinating talking to you, Tony, for well over an hour. I believe you have a book coming out. Tell us about it. Yeah, it's, uh, well, it'll be in the, the shops shortly. It's called My Ryder Cup Journey. You know, it goes back to 57 Ryder Cup being my inspiration to the first time I'd seen world-class golfers at Lindrick. I was with my dad and you know, 13's a very sort of impressionable age. And as soon as I saw the likes of Dow Winsterwald, Tommy Bolt, Dick Mayer, all these wonderful players, it inspired me. That's what I want to do. You know, I went back to the club that night and played the best nine holes I ever played, and I was smitten. And, and of course, played under a lot of different captains. I learned a lot doing that. Some were good, some weren't so good. Uh, but we, it's not just Ryder Cup. It's uh, life stories, t- stories at, at tournaments. And I think people will enjoy it. It's a, an interesting read. I don't pull any punches. I'm too old for that now. I'm 77. <laughs> I don't know how the hell I got to be this old. But there we are. <laughs> I think people will enjoy reading it. it. It'll be out there. It's. It's. In fact, I I got my copies coming to the house today via uh, FedEx. So uh, it's in print already, and uh, watch out for it. We'd love you to post some this way, three copies this way. Just please don't send it with the South African post office, or we will never ever see them. You'll have to FedEx them to <laughs> us as well. Well, Tony, Tony, I've got to, I've got to say to you. I know somebody that you used to enjoy spending time with, Simon Hobday. Oh, yeah. A year before he passed on. Yeah. Uh, I was with him and he said to me, he said, you know, Hayes, if I knew I was going to get this old, I would have taken better care of myself. You know, when, when I lived in West Palm Beach for, I'm going back 24 years, we, we used to have a party at the house for all the senior foreign players and We'd have a wine tasting. You cover, bring a bottle of wine. If you're South African, you bring a bottle of South African. We we covered the the, the labels up and numbered them. And anyway, we had Graham Marsh and Tommy Horton, all those guys. Simon would come every year, along with Johnny Bland, and uh, we had wonderful times. I think you know, looking back, oh God, I wish I wished we had uh, just a little bit of the money that some of these guys make today. But the times we used to have on the tour in places, you know, like Madrid and 
you know, we'd always would find the best restaurant in town, Casa Paco in Madrid. We'd go there, group six or eight of us. We had wonderful times. It's a, a great, uh, great memories from those days. Uh, I don't know where it all went. And now, of course, the highlight of uh, my day is going grocery shopping. <laughs> oh, and, gee, you've hit a big low. You know, I'm worrying <laughs> if uh, I've had enough injections and all that. But, uh, yeah. There we are. It's uh, it's been fun, nothing but fun, and uh, I miss it. Well, we've had a great time chatting to you on the podcast today, Tony Jacklin. Thank you very much for taking us down memory lane. It's been a real treat. Thank you. My pleasure. There it is. A win for the ages. The long and short of it. Simon Hill, Dylan Rogers, and Dale Hayes. Thanks for listening. We'd ask our friends, except we don't have any. So please like and rate this podcast. Until next time.